it's sort of funny because when I give talks about this in various professional groups, people will come up afterwards. They're always the experimental people. And they say, you know, you just told the story of my life because the problem is if you're experimental, you very often don't have time to develop your work. You're not facile. You're not a prodigy. You're not successful early. And so, for example, if you're an artist, you may end up, you know, having to teach high school and, and, you know, that takes all your time. You don't have time to develop your art. The conceptual people don't come up because basically if they already know this, they're already successful, you know, or not, but, but it's, it's pretty much done. The one footnote I would add is that, you know, you said, gee, if you could choose, you'd want to be conceptual because then you'd be successful early. Well, of course, there are a lot of unsuccessful conceptual people, but leave that aside. Let's say we could say you want to be successful conceptual or successful experimental. There are many, many successful conceptual people who make a great breakthrough and then not only themselves know that nothing they do after that is of any value, but are constantly told that. This is Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. I spent the past 10 years building my life and work around what I love, and I'm sharing what I'm learning along the way. Have you ever noticed how some young geniuses have rapid success? Have you ever wondered when your work will finally get noticed? It turns out there are two totally different approaches to making your art, and the approach that you take can drastically affect when you'll find success. David W. Gallinson is an economics professor at the University of Chicago. He's also a visiting professor at other schools, such as MIT. David is an unusual economist in that he studies the economics of art. I recently picked up David's book, Old Masters and Young Geniuses, The Two Life Cycles of Artistic Creativity, and I found it so fascinating, I had to have him on the show. David's theory is that there are two totally different approaches to making one's art. You might be a conceptual innovator in that you take a concept and then you run with it. Or you might be an experimental innovator. You might be tweaking for a lifetime, trying to figure something out. You may have heard about Gallinson's work on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. There's an episode that uses Gallinson's theory to explain why Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, took so long to become popular. In this talk, you'll learn what makes someone a conceptual innovator. What about an experimental innovator? Who are some well-known innovators in each category? You'll hear about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, Bob Dylan, Picasso, Alfred Hitchcock, many more. Can you actually change your innovation style? Or are you just better off embracing the style that you have? I'm really excited to have Brandfolder as a sponsor. I used to manage the brands at a couple of companies, and I can tell you that it's very, very hard. One of the hardest parts about managing a brand is dealing with all the digital assets to support that brand. Brandfolder provides a single source of truth for all things related to your brand. So your logos, your colors, your fonts, your brand guidelines, everything is all in one place. Everyone on your team will know exactly which assets to use to keep your brand consistent. Discover the power of Brandfolder today by going to brandfolder.com slash loveyourwork to unlock the complete potential of all your brand's assets with a free 90-day trial. That's brandfolder.com slash Love your work. And don't forget to check out my new book, The Heart to Start. You've heard a sample chapter in the previous episode. You've heard the advice before to just get started, but it's not always that simple. The Heart to Start will help you overcome internal barriers to finally get started. Search for it on Amazon or just go to cadavy.net slash heart. That's cadavy.net slash heart. 
And many of you have answered my call for Amazon reviews of the Heart to Start. So thank you so, so much. It's a huge help for the book. If you've already read The Heart to Start, could you please rate it for me? Go to cadavy.net slash rate. You just have to click on a star rating. You don't even have to write a review. Just go to cadavy.net slash rate. Click on a star rating for The Heart to Start. It will really help this book reach the right people. Here's David Gallinson. I'm here with David Gallinson and... David, I really have enjoyed your book, Old Masters and Young Geniuses. And the central concept in the book is this idea between this idea of the difference between experimental innovators and conceptual innovators. Could you present us with uh, an introduction of that concept? Yeah, I mean, it's basically that there are these two very different ways of going about creativity. There are the conceptual innovators who are, who are essentially deductive. And they make leaps based on abstractions. Um, and, you know, they, they, they typically do this when they're fairly young. They arrive in a new discipline. They say, gee, here are the rules. I don't like this rule. I'm going to get rid of this rule. So these tend to be really radical innovations that tend to be made by inexperienced people in these disciplines. And then on the other hand, they're the people I call experimental uh, who work by trial and error. And those are the people who kind of immerse themselves in some discipline. They accumulate information. They accumulate knowledge over years and years and years. They um, develop new techniques for analyzing the information. And their major contributions generally take much longer. They generally arrive late in their lives. And I th- think that the um, perfect examples of these two different types of innovators that they use in the book would be Cezanne, Paul Cezanne, uh, would be the ultimate experimental innovator. And then Picasso would be the ultimate conceptual innovator. Can you talk a little bit about their work? Yeah, they really are ar- archetypal cases. Um, Cezanne was absolutely typical of experimental artists, innovators, in that he was not sure what his goals were. I mean, these are people who don't have a specific target, but they're just vaguely dissatisfied. They're, they're uncertain of what they're trying to accomplish, but very often their goals are actually visual. I mean, regardless of the, of the discipline, they, they're interested in, you know, in expressing their perceptions. And so Cezanne worked for decades to try to create a two-dimensional representation of what he saw in three dimensions, of what he actually saw. This was a visual process. Um, And then Picasso came along and said, you know, um, I'm not interested in what things look like. I'm interested in my idea of them. Um, So, uh, you know, Picasso said, look, you know, I... I want to show you what's in my mind. I don't want to show you sort of what's in my, in my vision. Um, and, and they're archetypal in, in lots and lots of ways. Um, Cezanne does his greatest work at the very end of his life in his, in his late sixties, just, you know, before he dies, Picasso it reaches the peak of his career. He revolutionizes modern art at the age of 26 when he invents cubism and paints this remarkable painting, the Demoiselle d'Avignon. 
So just in lots and lots of ways, these are archetypal cases. But the interesting thing is, the more I work on this, the more archetypal cases I find. These, these guys are not anomalies. There are these very strong patterns in creativity. Yeah, and this is something that you have studied and actually measured. Uh, can you talk about some of the ways that you have distinguished that these are, in fact, uh, two separate approaches? Well, there, there are lots of different measurements, and actually, see, I'm an inductive person, and so, I mean, I, I can actually sort of give you the narrative. Um, I started doing this. I, I had no idea um, of, you know, trying to come up with a theory of creativity. I had no idea what that was or, you know, that, the, or that they existed. I was just curious about something. You know, um, I was curious what the relationship was between painters' ages and the value of their paintings. And I'd taken art courses in college. Um, my grandfather was a painter. I'd you know, gone to museums, art galleries all my life. I'd buy some art. And, and you know, just, just about 20 years ago, I was, I was amazed to discover that people in the art world, I mean, dealers, people who deal with money, they had no idea of the general relationship between the value of paintings and the age of the, age of the artists when they had been made. Now, my whole career, I'm an, I'm an economic historian, but my whole career... I've used micro-level data sets in one form or other to estimate the relationship between age and productivity for different populations. And so I thought, gee, you know, I, I know there are all these auction data. And we just started putting them in the computer and basically regressing the prices of, a, of, a, of, of an artist's work at auction as a function of a bunch of things, including the artist's age. And that's when I came up with kind of the most surprising result I've ever seen in my career that some of these age price profiles went up, up, up as the artist's age. Some of them went down, down, down. That was really remarkable. I mean, the idea that in a major intellectual discipline, a great practitioner could do his most important work at the age of 26, right? I mean, this isn't, this isn't the Olympics, right? These are intellectual activities. How is it that an activity like painting, Picasso could make the greatest contribution probably of the 20th century when he's 26 years old? And that was, that was the initial measurement, right? That, that, and again, it wasn't just Cezanne and Picasso. I mean, I've, I've estimated age price profiles for between four and 500 modern painters, and they divide fairly neatly into the ones that go up and the ones that go down. And so I started looking around. I said, well, you know, what's causing this? I mean, nobody in the art world had any interest in this because they don't generalize in anything like this way. They don't, they don't believe in prices. They don't generalize across artists. There's the whole, for a whole series of reasons, art historians, you know, just were completely uninterested in this work. And so I did what economists and particularly economic historians, but especially with economic history, a lot of times in economic history, you have a data set and it's, it's not perfect because their data missing or, you know, it's only partial. You get a result. And then the question is, can you believe that result? And so you do what my teacher called sensitivity analysis. You try to find uh, completely different kinds of evidence that will allow you to measure essentially the same relationship. And with painters, just fortuitously, I found several. There, you know, pain, <laughs> painters are a particularly good group to study, it turns out. I mean, this was just dumb luck on my part. But, um, you know, I knew I'd taken courses in art history. There are textbooks, excellent textbooks of art history. This is one of the way art historians can make money. They don't have a lot of sources of income, you know. Uh, they don't do a lot of consulting. And so, there are these wonderful textbooks and you, they, there are all these illustrations in them. And so you can take out, say for Picasso or Cezanne or any other artist, you can take out all the illustrations of paintings by those artists that you can find in 
dozens and dozens of textbooks. I mean, I, I would do studies using 50 or 60 textbooks. When you do that, it's kind of interesting because, because again, Picasso's most valuable work, according to the regression analysis of the auction data, was age 26. Cezanne's was 67. Well, when you take all of the illustrations by Picasso and Cezanne out of all of the textbooks you can find anywhere, what, age do you, what ages do you think are the ones that are most represented in those textbooks? And, you know, the answer is for Cezanne, age 67, and Picasso, age 26. And that's sort of a, that's a little more than a coincidence. And we've got so, thousands of painting. So to, just to clarify, during those years, like when Picasso was 26 and we saw, when Cezanne was 67, they were also doing other works that uh, were as important enough to art history that they were being included in art history books and anthologies and stuff, not just because, oh, yeah. they, aside from the most valuable pieces that were from those years. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, these painters make, uh, Picasso would make hundreds of paintings a year. Uh, Cezanne would make dozens. And, you know, paintings by, by Cezanne and Picasso are constantly coming to auction. I mean, there are hundreds of Picassos that come to auction every year. There are, you know, 20 or 30 Cezannes that come to auction every year. But if you take 20 or 30 years of auction data, you get a, get a fairly large sample. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the auction data are just based on whatever paintings happen to come to auction. The textbooks obviously can choose among paintings that are also in museums. And so these are completely independent data sets. Mm -hmm. And it, just to clarify also, there, you know, Picasso, it wasn't that he did his most important work when he was 26 and then he died when he was 27 or something like that, which we have cases like that in art. But Picasso lived to be in his 90s. Yes. And so he yeah. can, and he made yeah he made thousands of paintings. I mean, he he signed his name something like twenty five thousand times on works of art. Now Van Gogh would be. Uh, let me see if I'm getting this right. And Van Gogh would be a conceptual innovator. Uh, he learned a little bit uh, of impressionism, perhaps in Paris, and then left. And um, yeah, I'm not sure where he got the, like the post impressionism so he influence. Was, he was a highly conceptual innovator. And, yeah. and see, the interesting thing is, say, well, you know, he didn't he didn't make his innovations until he was in his late 30s. But he didn't start painting until he was in his 30s. I mean, he tried to become a clergyman. He tried to become a teacher. Didn't he didn't deal well with people, and so he failed at those occupations. He tried to be an art dealer, and he was unsuccessful at that. Then he took up painting. In the first five years of his career, he spent in his native Holland and in um, in Belgium, and he made these very peculiar paintings that in art history are completely unimportant. Then he went to Paris and he wasn't sure why he was going to Paris. His brother was there and he thought, well, you know, I'll try Paris. And that's when he discovered modern art. He didn't know what the, he, he wrote to a friend. And he said, you know, I didn't know what the impressionists were. I mean, this was, he was, he's arriving in the 1890s, 1880s, I guess. And he had never seen Impressionism. I mean, that wasn't, you know, there was no internet in those days. Paintings didn't travel, right? There weren't, you know, there were all these picture books. So he discovered Impressionism. And, you know, you said he learned a little Impressionism. Van Gogh was a genius, right? What does that mean? Well, he gets to Paris. He sees Impressionism. He sees the beginnings of symbolism. Uh, he finds, I mean, he's a, he's, he, he sleeps very little. He's got massive energy. He works all the time. And he finds people. He finds he drives people crazy because he bugs them with all this, you know, this sort of manic energy, but he finds Pissarro and Pissarro teaches him what impressionism is. 
and he assimilates it at the speed of light. I mean, if you go to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam, you'll see the paintings he first made when he arrived in Paris in this sort of self-taught style from Holland, which again has nothing to do with modern art. Within months, he's making paintings that are real genuine impressionist paintings. Very few people were ever able to do that, right? You know, this is, this is what happens when you get a really brilliant person who desperately wants to learn something, but wants to turn it to his own uses. He is conceptual. Impressionism is an experimental art. It wants to just describe, it wants to represent. So he learns it incredibly rapidly, but he's dissatisfied with it. He wants to express the intensity of his emotions. He doesn't want to just describe the world. He wants to show you how he feels about it. And so in Paris also, he finds a group of younger artists including Gauguin, who have taken off from Impressionism exactly to try to express their own emotions. These are conceptual artists. And he gets the idea. I mean, he spends all of, I think, two years in Paris, but it, this is like, you know, getting a PhD in, you know, in studio art in a year. I mean, he just, he, he, he sops it up and he's breaking down. I mean, his health is breaking down. Um, he, he, he sleeps very little. He, he doesn't have much money. He smokes constantly and he, he drinks constantly. He eats very little. His health is breaking down. He goes to the south of France to recover. And then within about a year makes this extraordinary breakthrough. And again, see, this is a characteristic. This is, this is the difference between career age and like chronological age because here he is in his mid-30s. Again, I could look up the exact age. But he's much older than you would say, gee, you know, this is not a conceptual young genius. But he's effectively been painting professionally for only a year. You say, well, he painted for five years in Holland. Yeah, but he didn't know the state of the art, right? See, that's, that's in order to make a major contribution to a discipline, you need to know the, the most advanced work in that discipline. He doesn't know that until he gets to Paris. And then he learns that at this incredibly rapid rate. And then, he, and then within a year or two, he makes his own, he goes beyond that. He makes his own paintings. And it's an aural that he makes the great paintings. And it seems um, so like, he, uh, I mean, it seems like you, you see these conceptual innovators such as, as Van Gogh. Um, oftentimes, it seems like they learn something from the experimental innovators, much like Picasso was uh, heavily influenced by Cezanne or the people like Andy Warhol were heavily influenced by the abstract expressionists such as well Jackson Pollock Pollock that's the one I'm looking for and and then so these conceptual innovators it's almost like they kind of this is the wrong word but they kind of steal the idea and are able to run with it and and these experimental innovators have spent their entire life trying to arrive at this concept is that accurate it's what conceptual innovators do it turns out um, not just in painting, but in all of the arts and in, you know, and actually in, in academia as well. Conce you know, it's funny because all of creativity consists of combining existing ideas toward new ends, right? That's true for experimental creativity. It's true for conceptual creativity. I mean, there, you know, I, I don't know when, you know, I mean, in the beginning there were new ideas, right? But there are no new ideas in the world today, right? There are only new combinations of old ideas. Uh, but an experimental innovator learns the state of the art and then takes that as a point of departure and then goes off. It's like Cezanne studied Impressionism with Pissarro, learned it extremely well, but wasn't satisfied with it. 
as a as a solid method of representation. And so he he went back from Over, where he worked with Vasari, went back to X and spent the next thirty years developing it on his own, his own you know his own additions to it. Whereas the conceptual innovators and what they do this in the arts, but they also do this in in scholarship. They take old ideas and instantly recombine them. They do this as graduate students. There are many Nobel Prizes in physics, chemistry, economics that have been won by a, grad, by a graduate student sitting in a class and saying, gee, if you combine those two ideas, you get a new, a new powerful result. But it's also true for writers, right? I mean, it's also true for songwriters. Why does Bob Dylan quote so many earlier writers? I immediately think of like Bill Gates versus Steve Jobs. I wonder about those. Is that like Steve Jobs is the experimental innovator? Bill Gates is is the conceptual innovator? Have you thought about that at all, or is that I, accurate? Jobs is a complicated case. I, I mentioned to you before we started this thing. I have very little interest in technology. I don't even use a computer, right? Sure. But I was on the night that Steve Jobs died. I was at home. I was sick. I was watching, you know, these talk shows, and so they interrupted the shows. And I was, I was very struck by something. I mean, I knew who Jobs was, obviously, everybody did. But there was a very distinguished writer, I think it was from The New Yorker, who said that Jobs was the greatest innovator of his generation. He was the Alexander Graham Bell of our time. And there was another very distinguished writer on separately. And these guys, these guys don't challenge each other. I mean, there's some etiquette on, on these shows. They run sequentially. The other one said that Jobs was the greatest salesman of our time. Now, those are two very different things. Right. And so Jobs is somebody actually I've, I've done a little bit of writing about. Um, you know, if you say what's the most important thing Jobs has done, and here I'm getting on probably kind of thin ice, but it, it's, you know, it's, you know, one in general, people say, gee, you know, this guy invented the personal computer. Well, of course he didn't. Steve Wozniak did. Right. Um, Steve Wozniak was actually, it turns out, the first human being ever to sit in front of a keyboard, type on it, and see the letters appear on a screen in front of him. We all take from earlier things. But Steve Wozniak was the one who essentially was the first person who said, gee, you know, I, I can make this thing. And, and people, can make, people can make out of what I've done. The Apple One, they can, the hobbyists can take it, and they can make their own computers. And Steve Jobs said, well, you know, if you make this, if you connect this thing to a to a screen, we can make money out of it. And Steve Wozniak did under Steve Jobs' urging. And, and then there's a this, there's this story in, in you know, Isaacson's biography that Steve Wozniak has made the Apple II and Jobs realizes they can make a ton of money out of it. And so he draws up a, you know, a, some kind of a contract of incorporation. I think they each have 45% and there's, there's some other you know, older guy who's got the other 10%. And Jobs takes it to Wozniak's house to have Wozniak sign it. And these are, these are both kids. I mean, I don't know, Jobs is 18 and Wozniak's 22, something like that. Wozniak's father's an engineer. So Jobs arrives there and, you know, there's Wozniak and his father. The father looks at it and he said, you know, he said, basically, fuck you to Jobs. He said, you haven't done anything. You haven't done shit. My, my son invented this computer. And it, Isaacson said, well, Jobs started crying, which is apparently what he did when people, you know, confronted him. And he said to Steve Jr., look, this is your invention. If you want, the company is yours. I'll withdraw completely. And Wozniak said no. And Wozniak wrote in his memoir, he said, he said, I invented these things. He said, Steve Jobs couldn't even wire a circuit. You know, he couldn't have invented these things. He said, but Jobs was the one who knew that we could market them. He was the one who made them into moneymakers. Now, 
So he was the act was a conceptual innovator. I mean, here's this guy at the age of like 22 inventing the personal computer. And by the way, never doing anything significant again the rest of his life, which is, a, again, you know, a fairly common pattern for conceptual innovators. This is a technological genius, Wozniak. And he, in fact, he was put in the Inventors Hall of Fame without jobs for the Apple II. It was quite clear he invented the Apple II, which was the first personal computer. Somebody else would have invented if he hadn't, but this was the first machine that was user-friendly that people could sit down and use. And obviously it's been, you know, massively influential. Jobs was a conceptual innovator because he saw the possibility of doing this. And, you know, he said... He said, you know, Jobs, Jobs said in an interview at one point, he said, you know, a lot of people who invent things feel kind of ashamed about it because they didn't really do anything. They just saw something. That's conceptual innovation. It's just, this is the, I mean, this, see, conceptual innovation, this is the thing that, that is caricatured in cartoons by the light bulb going on over your head. Mm-hmm. It's just a bolt from the blue. It's an idea. Bang, it's done. And that was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs saw, and he did it not only, he saw it not only with, with, the, uh, with the personal computer, but for example, um, with the, um, uh, the iPhones or the, the iPods. Sorry, again, I didn't use these technologies. Uh, you know, people had Walkman, right? But Steve Jobs said, gee, we can combine a computer with earphones, right? Essentially, that's combining two things that had never previously been connected. They both existed. He didn't invent them. But, and, and he couldn't invent the actual thing, but he could find engineers who would. Right? And he would say to them, I see this thing sitting on the table in my mind. You've got to make something that looks just like that. He did the same thing with the iPad. Again, it wasn't his technology. There were these guys in North Carolina, I think, who invented this touchscreen technology. But he saw how it could be used to make this incredibly profitable thing. Again, he saw the connection that other people didn't. That's conceptual innovation. So you see, and, and very often with conceptual innovators, you do get into this, in, this intellectual property issue because, you know, I mean, if, if you don't make it yourself, then do you, really, do, do you really, should you really own the property rights? Right, and it comes back to this thing. You know, I heard these two guys, you know, saying, again, two experts saying Steve Jobs was the greatest inno- innovator of our time. And then somebody saying he was the greatest salesman of our time. Those are very, very different things. So technology would be one of those places, I think, where, where perhaps a conceptual innovator would tend to excel um, because oh, they can... They no, can... I see. I, 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 you know, I, I would kind of reject that because, you know, again, I, you know, I, I took courses in the history of technology when I was in graduate school. That's a long time ago. But we can find lots and lots of very important innovations that were developed over years and years and years experimentally, right? We can also find others that were just, you know, a flash of genius. So that's why, I mean, there are very few disciplines. I mean, the more I've done this work, the more convinced I I am that virtually every discipline has had extremely important innovators of both types. There are very few disciplines that are intrinsically one or the other. Mm -hmm. And even there, I mean, people in technology tell me that there are major corporations founded on experimental innovations. I'm not even going to say what they are because, again, that's not my domain. I studied the arts. Sure. Well, and now back to Bob Dylan. You're talking about Bob Dylan 
you know, quoting perhaps work before. Um, I, we were talking a little bit about the podcast that I heard f- from Malcolm Gladwell, which is another place that I heard about your work. And he was talking about a conversation between Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, because his episode was all about the song Hallelujah, which uh, took many, many years uh, to become popular. That its original inception was, was, if you listen to it, actually a pretty bad song, but now it's become like one of the most covered songs in history. And so uh, Gladwell's uh, thesis was that, you know, Hallelujah is Cezanne, um, which might be a little bit of a stretch, but he was saying that Bob Dylan would be a conceptual innovator. Is that something that you uh, were Oh, absolutely. No, I've I've written a lot about Dylan. Dylan's an interesting case because, again, he has a lot of these features that a lot of these, these young prodigies have. I mean, he had this extraordinary ability when he was growing up to listen to a song once or twice and just know it, you know? So, I mean, in, in, when he was growing up in Hibbing, Minnesota, uh, that was back actually roughly when I was growing up, they had 45s, right? And he could go to his local record store and the way you could, you, the way you could try out a record before you bought it, they had these little listening booths. Well, he could take a, a new 45, go in the listening booth, play it once or twice. He didn't have to buy the record. He knew it. He just absorbed things. They said like a sponge, right? And so, you know, uh, he went to, he went to Minneapolis. He, his parents wanted him to go to college. He agreed to enroll in, in mission in uh, Minnesota. He dropped out you know, for a semester, but you know, folk music was all the rage. So he, he, he discovered, he read, uh, Woody Guthrie's, Woody Guthrie's autobiography and he became Woody Guthrie. He started aping him. He started, you know, speaking in an illiterate way. He started, you know, in, in these days as Donald Trump, you know, this, this sort of resonates because he started claiming that he'd done things. He'd ridden the rails. Well, I mean, this is a Jewish kid from Hibbing, Minnesota. He's a middle-class kid. His father's a salesman. His mother's, I think, a teacher. You know, this kid never ridden the rails, but all of a sudden he's, you know, he's, he's talking about traveling through Oklahoma. He's never been in Oklahoma's life, right? But he assumes this persona. And this is something that conceptual people do. They plagiarize, they steal, right? Then he goes to New York. And again, folk music is all the rage. And so, you know, I'm gonna, he writes a hit. Um, he writes uh, Blowing in the Wind, right? Which I think he's 22 years old, goes to number one, right? Now that's something that, you know, his idol, Woody Guthrie never wrote a number one hit. Pete Seeger never wrote a, a number one hit. But Blowing in the Wind is, it's very much in, this, in the line from Guthrie to Seeger, right? Guthrie wrote this land is your land. Uh, Seeger wrote, where have all the flowers gone? Blowing in the winds, a song like that, right? But then, you know, and, and he's, he's uh, you know, he's dating Joan Baez. They become the king and queen of, of, uh, of folk music, right? And then a year later, he makes a 180, right? And he says, you know, I'm not, I, I don't speak for anybody else. I speak for myself. And he starts making these, these conceptual songs that basically reinvent popular music. And this is basically, this is what he won the Nobel Prize for. I mean, he, 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 he I think he's 24 years old. He writes like a Rolling Stone, and that is a new kind of popular music. It's conceptual. Uh, the meanings are very unclear. You know, unlike folk music, where the meanings are perfectly obvious, um, he he quotes constantly from from other you know from other singers from from traditional songs. Uh, this is a completely new kind of music, and that's his greatest breakthrough. Uh, he has a series of later changes of persona, um, and he actually, I mean, he changes his. He changes his style. He changes even his voice. I mean, Joyce Carol Oates once wrote, said, and she said, Bob Dylan changes so much from time to time, he must be a fictional character. 
Right. Because he's trying out new personas. And the concept of persona, the concept of persona is basically a conceptual one. T.S. Eliot wrote about, you know, the, the artist doesn't speak for himself. He, he writes for a persona. Persona is the mask, the mask that characters wore in Greek dramas to indicate, you know, sort of the, the kind of person they were. So, you know, T.S. Eliot said, art is not an expression of the personality. It's an escape from the personality. And that's very much a conceptual idea. When Dylan sings these songs, he's not speaking for himself. He's quoting constantly from other people. It's, it's very unclear what he believes Right. And he's very elusive on what he believes. Folk songs were authentic. They were from the heart. They were experimental. Whereas when Dylan sings, you know, like a Rolling Stone, you know, it's not clear who he's, who he's talking about. Right. They, they're, these are personal songs uh, that, you know, that have no obvious meaning, but they completely changed popular music. I mean, the, the Beatles picked up on this. John Lennon picked up on this very quickly. And um, the Beatles changed from a kind of a traditional, um, you know, rock and roll band singing, singing songs like She Loves You uh, to singing highly conceptual songs that, again, were sort of hermetic. They were about John Lennon started writing about his own life in ways that nobody could understand. Right. Uh, let me take you down because I'm going to, stra- you know, Strawberry Fields. Nothing is real. Um, that was he was, he was talking about his childhood, but no, you know, nobody knew that. Nobody had to know that. They knew this was a new kind of music, and it just electrified um, literally and figuratively uh, popular music, and it changed it pretty much once and for all. I mean, the most important popular musicians ever since, like a Rolling Stone, have been conceptual. We're going to take a quick break. I'm really thrilled to have Skillshare as a sponsor of Love Your Work. I know that So many listeners out there are curious types like me that never want to stop learning. That's why Skillshare is great for you. It's just like it sounds. You share skills or people share skills with you. It's an online learning community with over 17,000 classes in design, business, many more things. You can learn street photography, business analytics, social media marketing. And you know that I'm a big Seth Godin fan. You're probably a big Seth Godin fan too. Skip the Netflix tonight. Take Seth's course. It's called the Modern Marketing Workshop. You and I could walk into any business school in this country, to any marketing class in this country, and that's what's being taught. That what's being taught is a framework to think about what you do when you have something you want to market. And this course is about something else. This course says, market what works. With Skillshare, you get unlimited access to Seth's class and then also all the other classes for one low monthly price. You never have to pay per class again. Skillshare is giving my listeners a month of unlimited access absolutely free. Go to Skillshare.com slash loveyourwork to redeem your free month. Keep in mind that Skillshare helps keep this podcast free. So please, if they interest you, make sure you go to Skillshare.com slash loveyourwork so that way they know that you heard it here. I'm really excited to have Readwise as a sponsor. You may have seen me rave about Readwise on Twitter. I did not get paid for that, but they are now supporting the show. Now, what is it? Readwise is a daily email. People often ask me what email newsletters I read. The answer is almost none. Almost all the reading that I do is books that I buy. The one email that I do read every day without fail is my email from Readwise. Readwise collects all of your highlights from your reading, whether it's from Kindle or iBooks or highlights that you enter yourself. And each day it sends several of those highlights to you. Sign up for Readwise today 
to retain more of your reading, get more out of your reading investment for free. And I have a new book out, The Heart to Start. So if you don't have a ton of highlights to start with, Readwise will send you the best passages from my new book. If you sign up at readwise.io slash heart, they will send you the best highlights from The Heart to Start. Again, you have to sign up at this URL to get those highlights and it will let them know that you heard about it here. Readwise.io, read, R-E-A-D, wise, W-I-S-E, all one word, readwise.io slash heart. Now, what are some of the characteristics that are usually a kind of a dead giveaway that somebody's an experimental innovator versus a conceptual innovator? Take an art. Uh, novels. Uh, are there believable characters? Right. So, you know, uh, Huck Finn. Huck Finn's a real person, right? That's somebody you can actually, you hear him talking. This is real. That's Mark Twain, experimental innovator. Uh, this is one of the, one of the greatest later in his writers. Life. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's writing about, about three-dimensional characters doing real things. Okay. Now, Hemingway, on the other All, hand, uh, Hemingway, the characters are not three dimensional. Right. The what matters in Hemingway is the plot. See, there, there's a trade off. It turns out, and I didn't, I didn't really understand this. I mean, literary scholars know this, but I didn't understand it until I started doing this work. There's a trade off between the importance of the plot and the importance of the characters, and writers know this. Either you can develop your characters, or you can stick to a rigid plot. You can't do both because it turns out when you develop the characters, they may not want to do what the plot is having is forcing them to do. Mm. Experimental writers come down on the side of characterization. Conceptual people come down, conceptual writers come down on the side of the plot. So that when Melville was writing Moby Dick, that novel had to build toward a single conclusion. That's a tragedy. Right. I mean, Ahab was challenging. This is hubris ate nemesis. You know, Ahab was taking on these supernatural forces and he had to be destroyed. Right. That's a Greek tragedy. That's a conceptual result. And so Ahab's not a real character. He doesn't speak like a real character. That book's not written in a realistic way. It's actually very funny when you read it because, you know, here's a novel, but periodically Ahab will inject stage uh, instructions to the characters, you know, uh, he'll, yeah, at one point he writes the time of day that he's writing the chapter, right? But, but the point is, you're not supposed to be caught on a, you're not supposed to think that this is real, right? That these are real people. This is a very stylized, artificial work that has this very dramatic conclusion. That's conceptual. Whereas when you read Huck Finn, you're supposed to be completely caught up in the idea, this, this, this kid's really doing these things. Right now, there's also there's really no no denouement in Huck Finn. That's always the problem. I mean, if if you basically devote everything to characters, you have a hell of a time coming up with some kind of definitive conclusion. So experimental novels very often have open endings, and Huck Finn does. And that was criticized for you know for for generations. And then it's actually very funny because T. S. Eliot came along and said, "Look, you know." Uh, the novel can't have a definite conclusion because Huck can't have a definite conclusion. Huck appears from nowhere. 
he's like he's like the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River doesn't have a starting and an ending. It just sort of diffuses. You know, it's it, we don't know exactly where it starts, and then you know, in the Delta, it just sort of diffuses. Huck is a force of nature. He doesn't have a definite beginning or a definite ending. Nor does the novel. Right, and, and we can go back to we can relate that to painting again with like Cezanne. Cezanne is trying to paint what he sees, and that is his uh, constant. Um, that, that's that's constantly his his journey. He's constantly experimenting with that. And then you take another conceptual painter like Warhol. Warhol has the idea in his head. He can hire somebody else to actually carry out and create the art for him because yeah, he has the concept. It, Exactly. See, Cezanne can never finish a painting because he could never achieve perfection. He, he didn't call it perfection. He called it realization. But same, same difference, right? He wanted to create a painting that would essentially show you what he saw. And of course, that's impossible. We know you can't make a two-dimensional representation of three dimensions. And so, you know, one of the really interesting tells in this regard is Cezanne signed less than 10% of his paintings. Well, you know, painters traditionally when they, the, the signature would be the last thing they did. That would be the indication the painting was finished. Cezanne virtually never signed his paintings because he never really considered them finished as far as we know. We also right? saw this with Leonardo, the, uh, who, would, who would say um, art is never finished, it's only abandoned. And he almost never finished anything. Even, even the Mona Lisa, he never really Leonardo finished it from what I know. Leonardo was a visual painter. He's a visual painter. He keeps returning to these paintings. That's why there's layer after layer after layer of paint because he can always improve on them. Right. And I found right. this whole concept very powerful for me uh, as a creator myself, because I think this is something that a lot of our listeners struggle with is they might start different things and have different curiosities that they follow and then and then lament the fact that they never finish anything or that that they feel like they are lacking direction. And, and in a way that can cause a level of doubt that holds you back Um so just for myself, I've found it useful to be able to think of myself as an experimental innovator and, and just embracing that makes it, uh, causes a lot less doubt because exper with experimental innovators, we often, we see a, a little more self doubt. Do we not? Oh, absolutely. There's a, there's a tension there. Um, Cezanne's favorite novel was, it was actually a novella by Balzac called the unknown masterpiece. And it was about a, a 16th century master painter who was the greatest painter of his time. Um, and these two younger painters of, you know, of the, the two next generations discuss his case. And the, the middle generation one says to the younger generation one, don't follow that model. He said, that's a great artist, but he has thought so deeply about our art that he's come to doubt the very, you know, the, the very meaning of what he does. In the end, the master, Frenhofer, because he's been unable to create a perfect representation of a beautiful woman, destroys all of his paintings and hangs himself. Now, when Emile Bernard wrote about visiting Cezanne in Aix-en-Provence, having dinner with him one evening, Bernard's a much younger painter, and he mentioned Frenhofer, the, the master of the unknown masterpiece, to Cezanne. And he said, Cezanne got up from the table, he was so moved, and stood in front of Bernard, he couldn't speak, but he just pointed to himself saying, I am Frenhofer, right? So in the, 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 the tension is that the doubt can become so great, and Balzac was fascinated by this, the idea that the doubt can become so great that it leads to destruction. Um, Cezanne didn't kill himself. See, Frenhofer killed himself because he was so frustrated by his inability to achieve. And this is, you know, this is the, 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 the simple version of this is the, the 
enemy, the, uh, sorry, the perfect is the enemy of the good. You can't achieve perfection. And if that's your only goal, it will end in destruction. Um, this is, you know, Cezanne did not kill himself. He vowed to die painting and he did, right? In fact, because we had that letter from a month before. He never gave up his quest. I mean, there was that letter from uh, a month before he died lamenting that I don't know if I'll ever find this thing that I'm looking for in, in my painting, right? No, and it was impossible for him to. It's interesting because Roger Fry, who was the first, you know, great English critic to recognize Cezanne, he wrote this famous book about Cezanne, and he said, you know, that for him, realization, what he called realization, it was an asymptote that he could approach but never actually reach, right? And you know what an asymptote is in mathematics, right? Sure. You know, you get closer and closer, but you can never get to it. And, you know, and I thought, that's really cool. You know, and I quoted that. But then when I reread the letters, I thought, no, no, that's wrong. It's worse than that. It's not an asymptote. It's a moving target. Cezanne says in the last letters, he said, you know, the, the, the older I get, the more I study nature, the more finally I see the shades of color. I see more and more shades of color and I see more and more shapes, but I can't create them on my palette. I can't create them on the canvas. So it's even worse than an asymptote. It's a moving target. And, and this, is, this is the Frenhofer problem. This is what Balzac understood. This is like a great chess master. The greater you get, the more you realize the difficulty of the, of the activity. And to clarify, and that's the devastating part. To clarify what, what Cezanne was going after was that he was trying to paint what he sees. And I think that to a lot of people that sounds like, oh, well, what's so complicated about that? But it is the, the part of the struggle was the fact that when you were looking at the canvas and painting it, you were painting your memory of this little patch of whatever you were looking at. Is, is that about right? Well, that's one of the problems. But see, I mean, sort of the most fundamental problem is that a painting is, has two dimensions and, and nature has right. three. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the great discovery of the Renaissance was scientific perspective, which is actually a mathematical system for creating depth. And it's artificial, right? You have to actually have a diagonal in the painting that recedes into the distance. So if you look at any painting that uses a scientific perspective, you know, from the Renaissance, it's constructed so there'll be a road or a river or something that leads your eye to the vanishing point. Now, you know, when we, in this, the impression, lots of artists, including Rembrandt, but, but then, for example, the impressionists, they said, wait a minute, when I look at nature, it doesn't always conveniently have a, you know, a, uh, a diagonal that leads me to the, to the distance. So, so that, you know, Renaissance perspective is not something I really see. I want to paint what I actually see. And so Monet and the Impressionists painted these paintings that actually, you know, showed what you see when you look at nature. The trouble was they're not solid. If you look at those paintings, they look very flat. The, the distance, it, it, this is something, you know, if we were in front of the paintings, I could show you much better. But distance tends to telescope and it's very difficult to tell what's in the foreground and the background. A lot of Monet's paintings, there are real problems with sizes of things that are in the foreground as opposed to things that are in the background. The distinction's not clear. So Cezanne studied Impressionism with Pissarro and he said, aha, I want to use the bright colors of Impressionism. See, because again, Renaissance perspective was, was very often joined with Masaccio's discovery of the use of shadow to, you know, to create depth, right? But again, for shadow, the light has to be just in the right place. And, you know, as Monet understood, 
the light moves around a lot. You know, the, the sun moves while you're, while you're painting over the course of the day. He made a systematic study of that. So you don't conveniently have shadow to create depth. So Cezanne said, look, I want to use the bright colors, the, the, the true colors of Impressionism, but I want to make, I want to get the solidity of old master paintings, but without the artificiality of shadow to create depth, without the artificiality of Renaissance perspective. Now, of course, what he was trying to do was impossible. And that's why, again, this is the impossible dream, right? This is the, you know, the, he's trying to do something that's not possible. You can, again, is it an asymptote? No. Again, you know, uh, I think, again, Balzac understood the more Cezanne studied, the more he could see different shades of color, the more, and he says this in his letters, but the colors on the palette don't immediately fall into those colors. You've got to spend a lot of time mixing to try to get those colors. So if you look at a late Cezanne, it has all these brush strokes. And they're all different shades, but they, he, you know, he says to his son, as I stand on the river, on the, on the side of the river, the view changes. Every time I move my head, the view, the view changes because of course, Renaissance perspective is done with only one eye. Whereas we have two eyes, we see things in three, in three dimensions, but also he's, he's become better and better at seeing these shades of color, but it's going to take him, you know, more and more time to create those colors on his palette. It's impossible, essentially what he's trying to do. But the progress he makes on it then leads these conceptual painters like Matisse and Picasso. They say, I have an idea. It's not directly, you know, what Cezanne was doing. God knows he would have hated what they did. On the other hand, it's based directly on what he did. It's a generalization of what he was doing. I mean, it, it sounds as if if I had a choice... I would be a conceptual innovator because I would have success faster. Now, is it, is it possible for somebody to change from, from one style to the next? Uh, it's, then, you know, people ask that and, um, you know, it's like saying, uh, can you choose to be a great chess player or a great mathematician? See, these are different ways of thinking. And it, it turns out that in, there are a few cases See, a lot of people change from being experimental or conceptual or vice versa, but they're only important in one, right? I mean, you're taught, I mean, Cezanne was taught to make drawings before he made paintings. That's a conceptual approach. But then Pissarro taught him that that was not his, you know, that was not his métier. And he just, it's, I think of it as, you know, sort of the, the writer's talk about discovering your voice. He became an experimental painter. He never he never tried to do anything conceptual again. Pissarro experimented or <laughs> kind of, Pissarro he tried, tried to, to change conceptual, too, right? And, and discovered it was an utter failure. Yeah, because basically it's like trying to change your brain. And we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to, if somebody's not an inductive person, we don't know how to make them inductive. And that's what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. You're saying, I'm a deductive person. I want to be deductive until I'm 30. And then I want to be inductive thereafter. We don't know how to do that. And so Pizarro, uh, if I'm remembering right, uh, met Seurat, and Seurat is, of course, known for the su Sunday afternoon on the island of the Le Grand Jate, which is, if I'm saying that right, which is uh, a bunch of, of pointillism. It's a bunch of dots that make up this giant painting that's in the Chicago Art Institute, very famous from, uh, our, some of our listeners might remember it from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But then after that, Seurat never really did anything, but he, he did. Well, Seurat actually died everything. very young. Oh, right. Okay. Right. He died very young. See, see, the Grand Jat was, it was sort of like a theorem. He said, I'm going to show you how to use color scientifically. And that turned out it, it was based on incorrect science, 
but it was based on science, right? That you could use color in a systematic way. He was going to systematize the use of color. His next project was going to be to, to systematize the use of line. He died while he was doing that, but he mm-hmm. died, died in his mid thirties. Um, but Pissarro, see, this is the thing where Pissarro was this unsuccessful, you know, uh, older guy was in his mid forties, wasn't selling his paintings. He suffered from the uncertainty of an experimental artist. He, 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 I mean, it turned out he'd been in on, he'd been with the, with Monet and Renoir and Sicily. He'd been present at the creation of impressionism, but that was not a big deal yet. It wasn't selling. He was married to a younger woman who had no intellectual interest. She just thought he was a failure because he wasn't making money. And he saw this young, confident artist come along, Surah, you know, again, conceptualists, they will tell you, I'm, I'm a genius, I'm right. And Pissarro thought, God, if I could only be like him. So he started painting like Seurat and tried to join him, but he discovered that it was a disaster for him, right? And so he went back to Impressionism and he basically said, look, this is just my lot in life, you know, to be uncertain, um, to be unsure, because these are issues of personality, they're not issues of mm-hmm. choice. You don't choose to be conceptual. You don't choose to be experimental. I found this, as I said, I found this concept to be very, very powerful in understanding my own work and my own approach to my own work. How about for you? Has this, has seeing and studying these different styles helped you understand uh, your own path in, in your career as an economist? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, and, and it's sort of music. I mean, I, I've known this implicitly all my life. This has just made it, I now have a vocabulary to explain it because essentially I'm an experimental person in a discipline that is dominated by conceptual approaches. And so, you know, my whole career, I've been in good departments and I've seen people, you know, make these meteoric rises. And, you know, I'm not a meteoric person. I'm a, you know, I'm a grinder. And so I work away slowly, slowly, slowly. And um, so, you know, I, I knew... I knew really explicitly that there are these very different career paths. I didn't really understand exactly what was going on, but um, you know, this is, it's perfectly obvious to me. And I think most of us are aware of this. I mean, it's, it's sort of funny because when I give talks about this in various professional groups, people will come up afterwards. They're always the experimental people. And they say, you know, you just told the story of my life because the problem is if you're experimental, you very often don't have time to develop your work. You're not facile. You're not a prodigy. You're not successful early. And so, for example, if you're an artist, you may end up, you know, having to teach high school and, and, you know, that takes all your time. You don't have time to develop your art. The conceptual people don't come up because basically they already know this, they're already successful, you know, or not, but, but it's, it's pretty much done. The one footnote I would add is that, you know, you said, gee, if you could choose, you'd want to be conceptual because then you'd be successful early. Well, of course, there are a lot of unsuccessful conceptual people, but leave that aside. Let's say we could say you want to be successful conceptual or successful experimental. There are many, many successful conceptual people who make a great breakthrough and then not only themselves know that nothing they do after that is of any value, but are constantly told that. You know, so that, for example, I mean, even some of the greatest of artists, I mean, by the, when Ernest Hemingway turned 40, right, not somebody who had a low opinion of himself, when he turned 40, the most important critic in the United States, um, uh, Edmund Wilson, wrote a long essay uh, explaining exactly how Hemingway had deteriorated over the last 10 years. And Wilson was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and now, Hemingway, course, another example. Oh, Absolutely. And, 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 these guys, and, they, and they know it. 
No, and they know it. I mean, well, I mean, Wells was burdened by the fact Wells made, made wonderful movies his whole life. But unfortunately for him, he made the greatest movie ever made as his first movie. I mean, when he was, he was finally offered, he, he was never, he was never given a, you know, an Oscar for best movie, but finally the Academy had a party for him. I think when he was 65, something like that. And Ingrid Bergman got up and said, it was an enormous burden for this young man to have made the greatest movie ever made when he was 26 years old. And then every time he made a movie, he was considered a has-been. Now, you know, he's, an, he, he's a sad example because he did make great movies after that, but it's obvious. I mean, you don't gain 500 pounds. You don't, I mean, this was a handsome, charismatic, brilliant actor as well as director. I, you know, I remember him as a kid watching him on television, you know, hawking cheap wines. Um, we will sell no wine before it's time. He's beaten over the head by that, by, by critics. You know, this 500-pound guy sitting in a chair, and, and he was a laughing stock. So on the one hand, he made the greatest movie ever made. On the other hand, he spent 50 years being beaten over the head with the fact that he could never replicate it. Now, it's kind of unfair because nobody else could ever replicate it either. Mm-hmm. But this is what happens. And then Hitchcock would right. be the, the opposite in filmmaking. Hitchcock uh, got made more and more important films as he progressed. Hitchcock right? made Vertigo when he was 59 and, and Psycho when he was 61. Vertigo's now. It's, it's interesting. I mean, in you know, the British Film Institute, Sight and Sound, takes a poll, an international poll of critics every 10 years. What's the greatest movie ever made? 1962, 72, 82, 92, and 2002. Citizen Kane was number one. Then in 2012... Vertigo was number one. The flip side is now, you know, Hitchcock made a lot of money. He was the wealthiest and he was a very good businessman a very savvy guy. He was the wealthiest director of his generation. On the other hand, he was always very, very irritated privately um, by the fact that, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, the critical opinion of him was that he was a hack. You know, Ken, I remember when I was a kid, he was considered by American critics just a successful commercial director. His work had no artistic value. Now, late in his life, in the 1950s, these young French critics, Francois Truffaut and the other Cahiers du Cinéma, critics who then became important directors, they picked him up. And that view eventually diffused to the United States. So young directors, you know, like Spielberg and Scorsese started to say, now this is a great director. Hitchcock is now considered the greatest director in the history of film. But for most of his career, again, he was wealthy, but he had to suffer, you know, from critics saying, this guy's just a hack. And again, see, a lot of experimentalists go through this, whether they're successful or not. Uh, and I'm just actually just writing a paper about this um, called, uh, what is it called? It's called um, Inconspicuous Genius. People like Hitchcock, like Howard Hawks, like Auguste Rodin, like Robert Frost, who are actually, you know, they're very talented, but their work is somehow so lifelike, it's so simple, that the critics say, well, they're popular, and this is really for children, mm-hmm. this is George not George O'Keefe would be another example that and comes not, to mind. Yeah, and not, yeah, not until much later, when younger generations say, no, we can learn technique from these artists. So Frost becomes considered a great poet. Now, for, again, Frost was, Frost was, he wanted to be popular, and he was, but critical success came very late in his life because he was, you know, these are, you know, two roads to version of wood and I took the one less travel, but this is for children. Right. Um, and that was the, that was always the accusation. And again, you know, I mean, Hitchcock, Hitchcock Hawks, they're just commercial hacks. So, you know, there's no, there's, there's no sort of guaranteed path here. 
Um, so the basic point is, you know, these are great innovators and we should recognize that there are both types. Yeah. You know, uh, unfortunately, until very recently, the academics who study creativity, really, they would have told you creativity has only one type. Implicitly, yeah. it's, the, it's the conceptual. They didn't recognize the experimental. That's ageist. That's evil. I guess I'd be interested to hear what sort of things are, you wrote this book in 2006. What sort of things are exciting and interesting to you right now? Um, the same things. See, I'm an experimental person. Uh, I don't, I mean, see, conceptual people, the motto is, and now for something completely different, right? That, you know, I finish one thing, it's done. Okay. Now I do something completely different. Picasso's very many, the blue period. Uh, Absolutely. Something so cubism. different that I can't. Yeah. I mean, see, Picasso is the greatest painter of the greatest artist of the 20th century. He didn't just invent cubism. He invented two completely different practices, right? I mean, he invented collage, which is completely independent. I mean, we think of it as being related to cubism because he did it in cubist idiom. It's a completely separate idea. It becomes one of the most influential ideas of the 20th century in not only painting, but in, you know, in the arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody had ever written a novel in which every chapter was in a different style, but that happens to be the most important novel of the 20th century. That's Ulysses. That idea came from, from Picasso, the changing style at will. That was the third of Picasso's ideas. So again, conceptual innovators, the idea is I finish something, it's done. I can do something completely different. Experimentalists, they do one thing, right? Because they keep learning about it. They keep learning more about it. So, I mean, I'm just finishing a new book. It's taken about 10 years. And it, it's really, it's a better presentation <laughs> Ten years. of my work than Old Masters and Young Geniuses. This is the best presentation Does this book I have a name? Make. I want to I buy it for sure. Well, it has a name, but it doesn't have a publisher yet. I haven't, I haven't submitted it to a publisher, but it should be out within the next year or two. It's sort of amusing because I- Can you tell I, you know, us the name? I, oh, it, it will be called Innovators. Oh, that's The one a, thing I've learned from Gladwell is one, one word titles are good. That sounds that sounds like a great time. I, I can't wait to read that book. Um, wow. So, David Gallinson, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation with me. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with David Gallinson. I, for one, found it totally fascinating. David's theory of conceptual and experimental innovators has helped me understand my own approach to creativity, and that has been very powerful for me. Go buy David's book on Amazon, Old Masters and Young Geniuses is available at kadavi.net slash masters. For details on an unconventional creative process, check out John Bokenkamp on episode 93. John is the creator of NBC's The Blacklist. I'll end up with, I don't know, 300 pages of that, and I'll print it out and go through and in highlighter sort of uh, mark the things that are worth keeping. And then I'll take another file and dump it all down into, okay, here are all these random sentences in capital letters. Again, John Bokenkamp is on episode 93. Or go a bit further into the past and learn about Michelangelo's creative process. How did he curate his image as a divine painter? Check out author Ross King on episode 99. One thing that I found fascinating is towards the end of his life, he began editing his output um, and he began burning drawings and things like that in order to, um, as one of his uh, friends said, in order to effectively cover his tracks and not allow people to see the development of his genius. Again, Ross King is on episode 99.
Is Love Your Work helping inspire you to pursue the life and work that you love? If so, I could really use your help. This show takes work and it takes money to make. To keep making the show and to keep it free for everyone, it needs your support. Besides subscribing and reviewing the show, there's one big thing you can do to help, and that is to donate. I work to make this show nourishing and thoughtful in an economy that's all about grabbing attention. This is not the short route to success. If you believe in Love Your Work's message of living a balanced life and finding fulfilling work, please join Love Your Work Elite, hosted on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that lets you support creators like me, vote with your dollars, and keep Love Your Work going. You're going to get bonus content and a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at lywelite.com. That's lywelite.com. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by top Love Your Work Elite members, such as Arif Akhtar. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for this show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love Your Work is a production of Cadavy, Inc.